When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. Rosamond McKitterick to tell us all about her book, Rome and the Invention of the Papacy, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020 and has just been reissued in 2023 in paperback, which makes a lot of sense because this is a fascinating history Um of the popes, of what they said about themselves, about what they wrote about themselves, to help us understand um, the role that this very important text, the Liber Pontificalis, I believe I'm pronouncing vaguely correctly, had in great in shaping the perceptions, um, the understanding, the memory of Rome, the popes, and all sorts of other things. So Rosamond, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about this. Well, thank you very much for having me, Miranda. Before we dive into your book, and of course the book that it's about, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this? Certainly. Well, I'm now an emerita professor of medieval history in Cambridge. I've been retired for about seven years officially, but I can't say I've noticed much difference, apart from the fact that I no longer have to mark exams and attend faculty meetings. But essentially, the book sprang out of some of my teaching, which is why I mention it. So there were three impulses. The first was when I was writing a great deal about history, and I published a book called History and Memory in 2004. And for the work for that book involved looking at every single history manuscript that I could get access to, that recorded the history of classical historians, of early medieval historians, historians such as Gregory of Tours, and the Liber Pontificalis was one of these. And one reason I wanted to do that was working on the Carolingians. I wanted to read all the texts that were available to the Franks to see what kind of understanding of the past they might have gathered from reading history of various kinds. And out of that emerged what particular understanding of the history of Rome did they have from 
reading these particular history books, classical historians, late antique historians, and also the history of the popes known as the Liber Pontificalis. So that was the first impulse, and I started to work gradually on the Liber Pontificalis a little, because the next thing that struck me was how many manuscripts there were of this papal history in the Frankish world in the 8th and 9th centuries. Now, the next precipitating factor, however, was teaching a special subject in Cambridge called Rome and its rulers from 476 to 769, which is a very deliberately chosen date, 476 being the deposition of the last emperor in the West, and 769 being a major synod in Rome at which Frankish bishops were attended, but it was just before the period I'd actually concentrated on a lot. And it may sound a little bit perverse, but I wanted to teach a paper to third-year undergraduates, a special subject, on something I still actually hadn't mastered, that I still needed to do all the work, so that I could take my students through all the evidence, the texts, the buildings, all the kinds of different things that one can look at for working on a period as early as that for Italy. And, And basically, it would be an adventure and an experience. I was lucky enough to have four cohorts for the special subject year by year from 2012 up to 2016 of really wonderful undergraduates. And they were so engaged and so interested. And we had a a three-day field trip to Rome to look at all the buildings that we were looking at also in our paper. So I had, as it were, the framework for working on Rome and now had built up over all these years enough knowledge, I thought, to embark on something more serious in terms of a book. And then the third precipitating factor was being invited to give the set of lectures in Dublin after a really very famous Dublin historian at Trinity College, Dublin, And that was an opportunity for me to focus in, in fact, three lectures, which is what they wanted. But their scheme was to have seminars so that as well as the lectures, you were giving them to a group of undergraduates and and colleagues and would get a lot of discussion and feedback at the same time. So unusually, really, for a book, this has had an enormous amount of discussion, lots of people asking questions, lots of people contributing suggestions. Also, I think really important for me was just questioning some assumptions I made unconsciously. Why is that such and such? What does that mean? This kind of thing. So it was a process of stimulation and interest from the very, very beginning. And then after I gave the lectures, I then had to consolidate the work. And it's at that stage I was lucky enough to get an emeritus professorship from the Levy Hume Foundation, which enabled me to go and see all the rest of the manuscripts, which I hadn't yet managed to see in various libraries in Europe. So I had a really very, very interesting nine months or so going to places like Leiden, Paris, Wolfenbüttel, Berlin, Rome. Vienna, and so forth, and Verona, to look at all the manuscripts that I needed to understand. So that's basically the background. 
thank you for taking us through that. It's a fascinating behind the scenes look really of how one puts together, how one investigates something like this um, and gives us a great foundation to kind of dive into the things that you figured out on this journey, examining all these things. Um, And I suppose the first place to start, I imagine you did something quite similar with your undergraduates in telling, teaching them about this text and exploring it with them. Can you tell us about the actual text, what it sort of says it's doing and the context in which it's doing this? Certainly. The Liber Pontificalis was first put together in the 6th century. There's been a dispute about precisely when, and I'll come back to that when we talk about a bit more about the political context because it's, I think, roughly 635 in the early 6th century. It's written within the papal administration using papal records, papal letters, things that people know within the papal administration. So it is essentially the Pope's view of their history, but it immediately raised questions of what are they trying to convince everybody else about that history. Now, the history, when it was written in the 6th century, took its readers back to the beginning, started with St. Peter, and then went up to their own day. There were then continuations added in the 7th century, not quite sure when, and then probably life by life or in one or batches of one or two in the 8th and 9th centuries. And that reference to life by life is the next clue of what kind of text this is. It's actually quite weird in some ways in that it's structured as serial biography so that there is a life for every pope from St. Peter onwards, right up to Pope 115. So Peter to Stephen V in the end of the ninth century. Each life is organized in a very, very similar way. So we have an account of the birth of the Pope and what his parentage was and what natio, it's an interesting word that's used. It's not exactly his nationality. It's not exactly his origin, but it has been interpreted as giving an indication that originally either he or his family were from Rome, or from Latium, or from Africa, or Spain, or sometimes just Greek. So there is an interesting indication of cosmopolitanism built into the account of who the popes were. And after that, there is an account of the career before the pope was made a pope, then an account of his election, and how he became pope, then an account of what he did while he was pope, and at the end, there are formulated formulaic sentences about how many ordinations he performed and how long he had reigned and then where he was buried and finally how many days, months, weeks or even years in some cases intervened before the next Pope was elected. So that structure is Syria biography. Now the interesting thing in many ways is that one would want to know well how new was it that particular structure and we do have serial biographies of Roman emperors so one indicator of what the popes and their the authors of this text and we don't know the authors precisely we don't have any names at all they may deliberately have been trying to structure this new narrative in a 
a way that reminded people of imperial biographies and perhaps even more than that, actually emulating it, even replacing it. Now, the political context then becomes important because it was written during the Ostrogothic Wars. And for those who are listening are not quite familiar with the way Italian history works, that after the deposition of the last Roman emperor in 476, there was an interlude with leaders of an army called Odovaca, and then Theodoric the Ostrogoth comes from the east, sent probably by the Emperor Zeno, and establishes himself in Italy as ruler. Rules very, very peacefully for several decades, but it's on his death that there is there are problems precipitated. And Justinian, the Eastern Emperor, at that stage, after the in the 530s, decides to try and reconquer or at least establish Byzantine control in some portions of Italy. The 535 to 540 date is a period in which the Ostrogoths really look as if they're losing, the Byzantines look as if they're winning. It is a slight interlude. What we seem to have is that this is a text that is indicating that the popes, at least in Rome, are now the rulers in Rome that they are separate from the Ostrogoths, they are not being conquered by Byzantium, though the relations with Byzantium remain very complicated for the next two or three hundred years, in fact. So that the text becomes precipitated by a political event. It's precipitated by a need to make a political stand, and it means that the popes and his advisors, and all the people working for him, are using the narrative, or we may ask whether they were using the narrative, to indicate their their new position, and therefore they had to establish themselves. Hmm. Very interesting, Um, both to understand kind of the structure of it and what it was probably doing, kind of why we saw it. And you mentioned, of course, that this is a weird text in a lot of ways. You also talk in the book that it was innovative or pioneering in some senses as well. Could you speak to that? Yes. It's pioneering actually in, first of all, the sense of using serial biography with the Pope as the main protagonist instead of an emperor, but structuring it so that you're actually structuring it within Christian time. Peter is the first Pope, the first Bishop of Rome, according to this text. But it's also innovative in that it's perceiving the history of the Christian church as a narrative sequence that comes after the Act of the Apostles. Peter is actually in the Act of the Apostles, and then he pops up in the Liber Pontificalis, and they're talking about apostolic succession. So it's actually quite clever in the way that it it really becomes a continuation of the New Testament in a way that no author has tried before. We've got Eusebius's History of the Church, written in the 4th century, which is a documentation of the history of the Christian Church. And it too stresses saints, in fact the Pope's figure in that narrative here and there, but it's written in a totally different way. Whereas this this particular text, and also written as late as it was in the 6th century when 
earlier imperial biographies were the 4th century or earlier, people like Suetonius or else the Augustan history are actually much earlier. So in that respect, it's it's innovative in its structure and in its approach and the connections it's making. But I think it can also be said that it's innovative in its purpose because it's got such a strong ideological thread. It is trying to persuade its readers, and we'll have to come back to that, of course, that the identity of the Bishop of Rome and the city of Rome and the history of the universal Christian church are all intertwined. And this is why I really called my book The Invention of the Papacy, because the book, in a sense, does invent the papacy. It, it's discovering it, but it's also actually creating it in this very, very important way. Another factor, I think, which is very interesting, which you don't see quite so much in histories written before that, is that because the bishop is there, the city of Rome itself is also very important in the history. It's not just the city either, it's also the people in it, and they are actually part of the group of protagonists that are invoked. There are other elements that the history includes. I've mentioned the weirdness of it. Part of that weirdness is this is a very laconic text. It's often infuriating because it doesn't actually tell you a lot of the things you'd really like to know. And it also is weird in the sense that we know from other materials such as letters and decretals from the popes and other narratives which mention them of vast masses of material coming out of the papal administration from the popes. This does not in the text. Sometimes they're, they're merely referring to it obliquely or they will mention it in passing or they will give you a brief summary. But it, it, in other words, it's providing a framework which suggests that there are other texts which you can bring into it in order to understand what it's saying even better. And a further aspect of it is that it's using the papal registry and records of all the buildings that the popes use. And it's a text that has given art historians the most wonderful resources for trying to document, and I say trying advisedly because not the chronology that's provided in the history isn't necessarily accurate. They will be trying to make particular political points by claiming a particular point is responsible for a particular thing. But the number of times we can corroborate the erection of particular basilicas and particular churches and other aspects of Roman topography in the text means that it's also in a way a, a, a picture of a city. It's mapping the city in the text in a way that's really very interesting. So for all those different reasons, it's a very innovative and interesting text. Clearly. I mean, that list alone is a reason to write a book about it, much less kind of all the other aspects of it. Um, for example, one of them I'd love to turn to is, of course, the innovation and the pioneering efforts of the book only really work if someone is reading it. So who was reading this text and how do we know? It's the absolute central question. Every single text we read in the early Middle Ages or actually anywhere, you say, well, who is reading this? What is the audience? And I suppose 
one needs to approach it from what is the intended audience and what kind of evidence can we try and pin down that will give us an idea. So let's look at the intended audience first. It doesn't actually tell us at all, except there's a preface at the beginning, which purports to be Jerome, between Jerome and Pope Damasus, saying that they want this history it, to make a record. So if we extrapolate from that, you make a history from a record, your audience is generally posterity, anybody who can get hold of it. But more specifically, I think it's at that stage you then have to draw on the other evidence for whether people were actually making copies of it, whether they make summaries of it, which they do, epitomies as they're called, how often you find quotations from it, how often you find references to it, and finally, what indication is there that this way of writing a history might have provided a model for writing about another institution, an ecclesiastical institution such as a monastery or bishopric. And we can answer all those questions in the affirmative. We have copies in Italy, though that history, the manuscript history is difficult and we may be able to come back to that later. But we do have copies in abundance from Francia in the late ninth, the late eighth, and in the ninth centuries and into the tenth centuries. Italy's evidence is slightly skewed. We have a number of epitomies, summaries that were made. One or two have been perhaps, possibly located to the sixth century, which is possible. Certainly, we have epitomies made in the eighth and ninth centuries. We have an abundance of quotations from it. And emulation is very interesting. The earliest emulation we have is actually in Gregory of Tours' History of the Franks in Book 10, where he writes a brief history of the See of Tours modelled on the way it's presented in the Liber Pontificalis, so bishop by bishop, with just a little bit about them, very, very like the structure of the lives in the Liber Pontificalis. But in the 8th and in the 9th and even into the 10th centuries, we get really a huge number of particular bishoprics and monasteries which structure their histories of their institutions according to the lives of their abbots and bishops, one after the other in this serial biographical form. So the Liber Pontificalis is quite clearly providing a model. Now, references to it, again, are of a various kinds. Sometimes it's just in passing that I've read in such and such that Pope such and such did this. But one of the most interesting instances of reference and use of the Liber Pontificalis is the ninth century scholar Wallafred Strabo writing in the 820s, 30s, and he died in early 840s. And he actually writes about ecclesiastical matters. It's a, it's a basically a history of the liturgy. He's constantly referring to the Liber Pontificalis, and not only referring to it, but actually using it critically, saying, well, the Liber Pontificalis says this about this particular innovation in the liturgy, but other people think that this might be an explanation of how this particular prayer is used, and then I think the following. So he's engaging with the history in really very interesting ways. So in other words, for the early Middle Ages, we get a sense of a text that actually is known, it's used. 
And one final aspect, which is more speculative, is that because, as I mentioned earlier, there is so much about the topography of the city, particular shrines of saints and martyrs, particular buildings, the importance of the Church of St. Peter, the importance of the Lateran. I think it's possible that the Liber Pontificalis could also serve as the kind of book that could be used by a pilgrim to instruct them in what to see in Rome. The only other speculative element in how it was distributed and who might have been reading is that there are some very interesting suggestions that have been made that as the text was written and the later bits were written, that maybe lives could have been sent as presents or diplomatic gifts in some way to make sure that the people you were visiting at a political diplomatic level had this history and therefore this knowledge. Hmm. Very interesting range there of audiences and uses um, that when we then think back to what you've told us of what the text is trying to do, um, consolidating the papal power in Rome, how how does the text do this? It does it by... <laughs> banging the point home all <laughs> of the time. It, it never ceases to stress the succession, the papal succession. One very interesting element of the history that's presented is that it's presented as a success story. Christianity triumphs, and it's, it's strong before Constantine, though the Life 34 of Pope Sylvester, which coincides with the emperorship of Constantine, is presented very, very definitive as the formation of a particular relationship between emperor and pope. But before that, historically, we know from a lot of other sources that Christianity was beleaguered, it was a small sect, it was not popular, it was often persecuted, it had major difficulties, it was probably mostly quite poor people, very gradually you get a build-up of the richer aristocracy, though more known about those than when it became a legal religion than before. But what we have is an interesting one-sided view, focusing on the Bishop of Rome, so that it looks as if there's always one bishop rather than really probably quite a lot of different religious groups within Rome in the early years, and I'm, I mean the first, second and early third centuries, where it wasn't unified. There, There is enough information about people like Hippolytus and others to know that there was probably tension, dissension, not agreement, no, no, not probably not pulling together. But the Liber Pontificalis says, no, nope, it's always been one bishop, completely loyal, and some of them turn into saints, they, they are martyred. So that the early part is setting up the early history of the Christian church before Constantine as a succession of leaders bishop leaders, the single bishop in Rome who is the leader, many of whom are martyred for their faith and become the foundation saints, if you like, of Rome and Christianity in the West. So that's that's one thing. The next thing is that there is a, a stress on the fact that the Pope structures the church. He's, he's introducing legislation which arranges Rome itself, but also makes decisions about the clergy and the structure of the church. He also is making decisions about the liturgy. 
and certainly the Liber Pontificalis is providing us with a very interestingly chronologically orderly history of the liturgy, which by the 6th century may have looked like that, but possibly some of the particular crediting of particular bishops with inventing this, that, or the other element in the liturgy, such as where the Gloria goes and the Agnus Dei and the like, are actually pieces of information after the event. But what with these, and then the uh, an extra stress is actually stress on the orthodoxy of the Pope. The Pope is the upholder of orthodoxy. He's also the first most important bishop because he is the successor of Peter. So all those messages are actually hammered home in most of the lives, some more than others. What we don't get, and that's the frustrating element that I've referred to before, is an enormous amount of political context. Very occasionally we do, but not a lot of detail. Hmm. And when we think about this, obviously there's a goal in shaping kind of as you said, making this all seem nice and orderly and everything's fine, um, which is quite contrary to other information that we have. What work is this also doing to make Rome as a place seem more Christian, more consistently Christian? And kind of how does this impact things? Again, that's a really very interesting aspect of the text. And I think all the time when we're talking about what's the Liber Pontificalis do, etc., I think we are dealing with a representation that is going to be read by people who may never, ever get to the city, or some of them may come, and that, that will be an image that's been created before they come. But one way in which it is making Rome seem a Christian and holy city from the beginning is partly what I've just been talking about, the way the bishops are made the saints. It's also a, a city that becomes organised, regulated, according to Petrine time, if you like, a Christian time. And the other aspect is that we also have information about particular individual popes and very occasionally priests or other individuals, lay individuals, who contribute to creating martyr shrines and saints and holy places. So that very gradually you get a cumulative effect of the city and the topography gradually changing as more and more saints, more and more churches are added, more martyr shrines created, martyr shrines on the periphery, references to the cemeteries of all the saints. And one very curious aspect of the cemeteries outside the city of Rome is that in the later lives, 7th and 8th and into the 9th century, we have records of popes bringing in saints from these cemeteries. Now, possibly they weren't actually saints. They were earlier citizens of Rome. Some of them may not even have been Christian citizens of Rome. But the whole bringing in to make them as if they are relics is actually a way of Christianizing the population of Rome and taking that history back. They're, they're writing a history of the city, which is essentially a Christian history. And it's a really very, very interesting and clever thing to do. Could you tell us a bit more about kind of that aspect of it? Because of course, we, there's some of these elements of 
ordering everything by the popes rather than by the emperors, um, focusing on the churches, not, for example, Roman ruins or pre-Christian Roman ruins. Um, how does the text kind of, does it acknowledge the pagan past or is it this sort of idea of kind of pretending as if it has always been Christian and therefore making it so? No, it doesn't pretend it's all Christian, but what it does is place its Christian buildings in juxtaposition to the pagan ones. It it acknowledges that there are major landmarks in the city which are familiar to everybody. They walk past them every day. And it says, well, this particular church is now near the markets of Livia. It is near here. It is near there. So that the the topography of the city, therefore, is the, the, the old imperial topography is underlying it. And there are occasional references to particular emperors in the course of the story, which ally them, which not so much the pagan ones, it has to be said. The pagan ones are the ones persecuting the the bishops. But with the city itself, you, you get a sense that you're not being asked to discard or forget or ignore your the pagan monuments. They are becoming part of the essential fabric of the city. And I think there's one way in which you could judge the success of that. There's a really interesting text called the Einsiedeln Itinerary, which was produced probably late 8th century. It survives in a 9th century manuscript. It's a Frankish pilgrim to Rome. And he structures, you know how in guidebooks you get walks and you're said, right, you go set out from here and on the left you will see right there and on the right you will see that. This Einsiedeln Itinerary says, well, on the left you will see this particular church, on the right you will see this particular monument, which is this wonderful imperial arch or a column, Trajan's column, so that there has never been a point at which citizens in Rome were required to forget all their past at all. But what they do is integrate the Christian history into that old pagan past, or put it another way, the pagan past becomes a platform on which the Christian edifice is then built. Hmm. So given how much of an impact this kind of has on how things are remembered and as visitors um, come to see Rome, it influences their perception. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the impact of the text on the conception of time, right? We already have this idea of kind of counting by Pope, um, but how else does it impact concepts of time? I'm not so sure about that, you know. I think it's organised. It doesn't actually give you AD dates, though we know that Dionysius Exiguus was somebody who was putting together the new system of anadomini dating as a result of papal discussion and all the discussions about the date of Easter. But there are allusions to that in the, the text, but it doesn't spell it out. So that the assumption is that it's you're you're in Christian time and your chronology is is basically Petrine. It's you do it in terms of papal reign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess thinking about kind of all of these different impacts, 
we you, you've given us some great examples of what audiences were actually using it for or the impacts we can see. Is there anything else we can understand from kind of where texts end up or which things get epitomes and which don't to understand what the audiences were actually kind of which bits they liked <laughs> or which bits were having an impact? Yeah, you can get a certain sense of that. I think this is the moment to explain some of the peculiarities of the manuscript transmission. I was quite surprised when I started to map it properly and look at the wonderful list that Louis Duchesne provided in his edition back in 1886, that most of our manuscripts of the Libra Pontificalis are Frankish, so produced north of the Alps, and The earliest of the Frankish manuscripts is from the late 8th century. So we have no original manuscript from Rome of the 6th century text. We do have a few Italian manuscripts dating from before the 11th century, but they are all odd in their own ways. We have a fragment from the 6th century. It's a fragment in the sense that it looks as if the whole text was once in the manuscript, but it's in a codex in Verona now, which has lost its first choir. So we've got 19 pages missing, or perhaps 18 or 19 pages missing, and we've only got the, not actually the end of the text, but the text of Symmachus right at the end in in the 6th century, early 6th century. That's 6th century, It lists then the popes up to Vigilius, who is in the middle of the 6th century, and the script of it dates it to the mid-6th century as well. So that's that's our clue that by the middle of the 6th century, the Liber Pontificalis had reached northern Italy. But it's not quite as simple as that, unfortunately, because that particular life of Symmachus is different from the one in all our later manuscripts. It's not... It just gives a a slightly more critical picture of Symmachus. Symmachus was involved in the Laurentian schism so that he was actually in dispute with another pretender to the papal throne called Lawrence or Laurentius, hence Laurentius schism. And Laurentius was actually in power in Rome for a little while. So the puzzle has been to work out quite whether that particular version in the Verona Codex is the original, and all the ones we have are basically copies of a later version, or the other way around. And I'm afraid there's no resolution to this problem. It's just a really interesting one. And, and then our other, our other Italian witnesses, there's one that now survives in a manuscript in a terrible condition in Naples. It was somebody trying to, it's it's a palimpsestive manuscript, so the Liber Pontificalis text is 7th century and on top, and somebody wanted to read the underneath script, Angelo Mai his name was, and he put chemical reagent on it and basically destroyed most of the manuscript in the process. It was probably visible for a little while. He could read the underneath classical text. So it's a great pity because if we could read all of that, we would have a better sense of whether or not we're dealing with something that's just the same as our later copies. It hasn't got the life of Symmachus, unfortunately. Um, And then there's another fragment from the 8th century and a kind of epitome made... 
in a modern manuscript, which will answer your other question about which bits do they like. And that's the one that emphasizes all the legal bits, all the legal elements, the decrees, and it puts it in the context of a canon law collection. And that actually reminds me that one other use that I omitted to mention was that when the papal decretals are put in in canon law collections, they're actually done in Pope order, which may indicate that there is some influence being exercised by the papal ordering in the Liber Pontificalis. And some very early canon law manuscripts from the 6th century also have lists of the popes actually in them, which again is something that's taken from the initial pages of a Liber Pontificalis manuscript. So that's that was just an aside. But then with our eight, late 8th and 9th century manuscripts, the earliest Italian one we've got is circa 800 from Lucca. Again, it's from northern Italy. So what we can piece together from this is that the text was circulating in Italy. It was certainly reached northern Italy by the 6th century. There are other copies in circulation in the 7th and 8th centuries. And what the manuscript in the northern Italian copy from circa 800 tells us, it's Lucca 490, is that these later lives were possibly being sent out from Rome and that particular scribes were then adding them in to existing copies so that they would then add another lives onto it. And it's it's quite hard to envisage in what form the Liber Pontificalis first reaches anywhere. We know, as I've said earlier, Gregory of Tours knew it. He had a manuscript of it because he's obviously emulating it. So it's possible that in Merovingian Gaul, a copy of the original version from the 6th century was available. But then when we look at later copies, it looks as if they are made from texts that might have either arrived piecemeal from Rome and then a scribe decided to put them all in sequence or they're sent out from Rome with updated versions. And again, we don't know how it works. It's really, really difficult and one doesn't know whether scribes are coming to Rome armed with a scribe, parchment and sit down and they're allowed into the papal administrative office to copy it out or whether their commissioning copies, or exactly what's going on. So it, there's a big puzzle, basically. It remains a puzzle, and all one can do is try and look at more and more manuscripts and see if somehow a pattern emerges that's, that holds up some answers to these questions. I'm not sure how far we can get. I did try in my book to, to get some distance. And the other interesting thing about it is that the text itself can be divided into variant branches and Duchenne called them A, B, C, D and E and actually G as well. And the B and C texts are what he called the Frankish ones because they have very interesting additions in some of the 8th century lives and here and there elsewhere, but mostly in the 8th century lives, which actually are about things to do with Franks or relate to things that interest in the Franks. And they are only found in the Frankish manuscripts. And I have suggested in my book that actually that is a consequence of the people who had to go back and forth to Rome. They really knew this text. And what they are doing is making sure that it was 
even more relevant for a Frankish reader. Mm. Which suggests that they thought the text was important and influential, right? They wouldn't bother exactly. if they didn't. Exactly. And then there's a, quite an interesting summary made in a, in a manuscript I wrote about in, in another article. Where it's later, it's 10th century. And what they're extracting from that is all the ordinations. So bishop after bishop is recorded and where he was and then his reign and then how many ordinations. It's as if for that particular scribe, what they wanted was the continual creation of clergy, the continuity of church personnel. Whereas other epitomies, they're, they're more interested really in the legal, the legal framework, the way in which the way the Pope is organizing the church, organizing the clergy, issuing decrees, relates to canon law and conciliar records that are also being kept. Well, that's quite a lot of fascinating ideas of, you know, who knows what someone might unearth in an archive. And also, I have to imagine, a lot of interesting fodder for historical fiction, right? You could make a whole thing of someone gets sent to Rome to investigate and it says, well, you have to come back with this information because we've got a bishop that we need to wrangle this way. <laughs> so there's all yes. sorts of possibilities for further work. Um, but I'd love if you tell us if there's anything you might be working on, um, either at the moment or in future. Well, you're, you're right in a way in that I've given probably enough indication that I've nowhere near resolved some of the problems. <laughs> <laughs> but also, it's in my book, I, I really didn't go much into the 8th century even. I concentrated on the early history and the 7th century sections far more. It was partly because colleagues and dear friends of mine I knew were working on the 8th and 9th centuries. And there's plenty of room for all of us, but there's also only so much you can put in one book. But I have got increasingly interested in the peculiarities of the ninth century lives and what they say in a period which is supposedly one in which the Carolingian rulers were very, very active in Italy. And some have even suggested they had some degree, if not control, certainly influence in Rome. So I've actually writing a paper about how Carolingian Rome was in this period, I think with the intention of demonstrating that it wasn't particularly, and that the papal relations with the Franks were really from each side seen in very, very different ways. I've been looking also at the Frankish annals and the way in which they actually fail to say very much about Rome at all in the Frankish narratives. So that essentially I'm still worrying about Rome and the Liber Pontificalis and the Franks. And one further aspect was a paper I've actually recently finished. It's actually being published this year, which is about the papal library and the degree to which we have to worry about how many books are written in Rome where are they and how do we identify them? Because one of the peculiarities of the surviving evidence is that we've got very, very few books before the late 8th century that we can say definitely were written in Rome, as distinct from a huge mass of copies of books that quite clearly were once from Rome. Mm. 
all sorts of intriguing mysteries. I'm not surprised that you're continuing to write about them. Um, And of course, while you're off doing that investigating further, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Rome and the Invention of the Papacy from Cambridge University Press, uh, initially published in 2020 and recently out in paperback in 2023. Rosamond, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Miranda. It's been a pleasure.